Welcome to The Current, a podcast produced by We Stand for Energy. We Stand for Energy is a community that supports a reliable, affordable, and sustainable energy future for everyone. It is a project of EEI, Edison Electric Institute, the National Trade Association representing U.S. investor-owned electric companies. My name is Brad Viator, Executive Director of External Affairs at EEI, and I'm your host. Well, welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. We're going to have a discussion about the mutual assistance or mutual aid program that the electric companies operate. And this program is really one about shared service. It's one where electric companies contribute resources to other electric companies that are dealing with storms to really aid and expedite the recovery of service after things like hurricanes, floods, wildfires out west. And it's a really unique shared service program. So we're going to dig into some of the details of that program, what it is and how it works. And then we're going to pivot the conversation to how it's working amid the COVID crisis. There have been a few storms and a few wildfires widespread outages amid this crisis, sort of dealing with all the struggles that 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 crisis has created. So this is going to be a bit of a dive into that. So my first guest in the discussion today is Wally Melia, who's the Director of Preparedness and Recovery Policy at EEI. And Wally's going to give us just kind of a broad overview of the mutual assistance program, and then we're going to pivot to Willie Wilson, the Vice President of Operations at Intergy, who will tell us a bit more about the challenges that COVID creates as we consider mutual assistance. So, Wally, I'm going to start with you. What is the mutual assistance program to our audience of policymakers and electric company novices? Can you boil this thing down and tell us what the program is that you work on? Well, in its shortest form, mutual assistance is a force multiplier. It's a voluntary program where electric companies can call on their neighbors and peers to obtain resources, be it human resources, crews, line workers, material, or even equipment to help them recover and restore power to their customers after any sort of incident. Most common is typically weather threats but it would be applicable to man-made threats, uh, things like earthquakes, uh, wildfires. Uh, Right now we're in the middle or the beginning of hurricane season, so that's uppermost on the mind of folks on the Gulf and the East Coast. But the concept around it is that you can access qualified resources to help you get your customers back online faster. It's a voluntary program. Safety is paramount here. Companies do this to assist their peers and with the expectation, obviously, that someday they may get assisted too. So it's been in practice for many, many, many years. And we've worked to try to build and enhance the program so that it's truly scalable from a local incident to a regional incident to multi-regions or even to a national level incident, something like a Hurricane Sandy, or if you had a massive earthquake in California, we'd be able to bring the entire industry together and all EEI members could support the restoration of electric service through this framework. Okay, so 
let's get into the nuts and bolts. How does the program work in regular times? One company's jumping on a phone and calling another company and saying, hey, man, we got an outage. Do you have some crews you can lend me or is it more than that? Well, there's actually a, a regional structure that EEI members utilize. Other parts of the industry have slightly different approaches, but our members work through regional mutual assistance groups, and there are seven of these organizations. Again, this is all voluntary, and those are set up corresponding to seven pieces of the country. Some companies are in multiple RMAGs, but each RMAG has voluntary leadership, which are typically folks like Willie or Willie's direct reports that are the storm managers, the response managers. And in a small incident, they may just have a simple phone call. Uh, I need, you know, 50 crews. Can you send them by tomorrow? In a larger incident, there are more formal calls. So the RMAGs will meet and document the requests and then the response that is available. We at EEI also helped our members build a resource management tool that we call Ramp Up, which allows companies to have an online platform to make requests of support and then also respond. And it helps in the allocation of workers by being online, being transparent, being easy to use. And it saves a lot of sort of administrative details that might happen when companies are making requests or providing their resources and to help. And ultimately, if it scales up to the most severe events, we've worked with members to create what we call the National Response Event Framework, which is where resources from multiple RMAGs can be pooled together into essentially one super RMAG to provide resources equitably to companies that might be impacted. So that would be for, again, the most extreme events, a Hurricane Sandy or greater, you know, a New Madrid earthquake, something that goes way beyond the ability of regions to respond. And the regional approach is really fundamental in this because emergency response is always locally driven. So we want this framework to be able to support the operators on the ground and give them resources, but allow them to make sensible restoration decisions as they see fit, but in coordination with their peers and colleagues. Excellent. Thanks, Wally. And the RMAGs you were referencing are those regional mutual assistance groups for our listeners' awareness. I'm going to turn to you, Willie. This is Willie Wilson, the Vice President of Operations at Intergy, to talk about this program working out in real life in real time. I understand there were some storms and some outages over the Easter weekend, which were in the early days of work from home COVID crisis. Can you tell us a little bit about how that worked, how you adapted storm response and recovery to the challenges that social distancing create? Sure. Thanks for the invite. Good question. In terms of our adaptation process, it started well in advance of those those Easter storms. Um, Wally kind of hinted on it. We started collaborating with EEI and other industry partners back in early February, late May timeframe to develop some storm pandemic dual event considerations. So I do want to send a shout out to everybody and tell them thank you for that collaborative effort, which gave us a blueprint 
iteratively plans that we could deploy quickly and not have to start from scratch by ourselves in a vacuum. What we did was expand on that external collaborations, and we established a risk and scenario planning team internally in mid-March to continue to identify risks and mitigation strategies to support the dual event effort with a focus on safe restoration while maintaining the pandemic spread. Fortunately and unfortunately, we did have five April events. So we had a chance to implement and assess those dual event strategies. During that time, we deployed over 5,000 utility workers. We were able to restore power to 200,000 customers within seven days without any kind of uptick issues associated with the spread of the disease or the pandemic. We did have some of the worst damage in Arkansas that they've seen in 20 years. So it was a significant event, almost hurricane-like. We took that information, lessons learned, and discoveries. I mean, we developed the first of its kind, a remote system-wide tabletop with almost 250 participants over a one-day span. And that included participants from the DOE, MISO, the Texas Public Utility Commission, as well as the Texas Emergency Management Center and the Mississippi PUC. So those things kind of helped us get to the point to where we're at now. And we're still flushing things out because this is a very, very fluid situation. As you think about just the pandemic-specific problems with safety and social distancing, I know I've talked to some labor union partners who say that, look, you know, business is a little bit different. We can't have the tailgate talks and meetups that we would typically have before some of these events because of the other atmospherics around us. Can you talk a little bit about some of the safety adjustments that you guys have had to make in response to these storms and these events? Uh, most definitely. Again, I got to say this. I would be remiss if I didn't safety and health is the number one priority. So we did diligently and purposefully pursue the things that we needed to do on that front. Some of the things we did was implemented personnel screenings to track and monitor the pandemic cases and mitigate the spread at the same time, minimize personnel movements to offices and buildings and other facilities so we could kind of isolate upticks as much as possible. And we suspended large-scale workspace gatherings related to safety onboarding, equipment, staging, as well as restoration, dining. And then we knew that this added a different layer of distractions. So we said, hey, we probably need to stand down, have more proactive safety stand downs than what we normally do to manage focus and fatigue and all of the things that people are dealing with professionally. And a couple other things in terms of how we coordinated with our external partners in terms of evacuation plans from a public safety standpoint. We definitely had conversations with them to align around when triggers might be pulled. In terms of us, we got some low-lying areas that we need to move equipment and personnel to higher ground. So we want to be ahead of the contra flow. So we got information and feedback on what that looked like. And we adjusted our plans to make sure that we could stay ahead of 
the contra flow traffic to get our equipment out of harm's way so we could be ready to provide restoration services if needed. And then the crew management approach that we we definitely took that from the, the mutual system discussions to keep the crews intact and together to help us minimize exposure, but also maximize contact tracing. Lodging, we went down to one person per room instead of two people per room. If we did two people in a room, it had to be more of a suite type room where they could separate themselves. And those were usually for crews that we kept together the whole time. And then we increased our, revised our proactive communications around the impact of COVID-19 in terms of durations and definitely stressed the importance of, to the public for them to not to interfere with the crews and to maintain social distancing as the crews work. So those are some of the safety things that we'd be implementing. You're one of the leaders in thinking about mutual assistance on a going forward basis, one of the leaders in the industry as a whole, not just in energy. What are some of the things and changes that your company and other companies are making amid the COVID crisis in terms of like response that you think will stick? Like what are the things that, that the sort of like practices that we will continue to employ on a going forward basis, even once we're back to some semblance of normal? Yeah, definitely always looking for efficiencies with every effort, every endeavor. Just off the top of my head, when I think about we want to spend gateways where we bring people in for safety orientations. What we're trying to do is link up with the Alliance Safety Council and do some pre-arrival packages for our mutual assistance and non-base load contractors via presentations, video orientations, material, and have question and answer sessions to provide clarity and alignment around those processes. That's going to enhance our ability to onboard and orientate the crews in a way that we could expedite getting them into the field such that we don't lose any productivity. Can I step in there? So what I'm hearing is that you guys are doing a little bit of training for the crews that are coming out of state before they arrive, before yes. they, they get on site. Oh, that's cool. That's a very novel and I guess logical development. That's mm-hmm. yeah, good to hear. You know, so that forced our hand to think about that and pull the trigger on making expediting it. it. It could be done. It's just going to require fellowship and explaining a lot of stuff ahead of time, but it's completely doable. Well, Willie, it's interesting to hear about how well you guys thought through some of these problems with the Easter storms and how prepared you were. But I want to pivot over to Wally for a moment to get a better understanding of how all of this useful information, real-time adjustment energy and other companies were making to respond to the Easter storms are being shared about the industry so that we can be prepared for new challenges and new outages and just get smarter and better. So Wally, any thoughts on that? Yeah, Brad, the response to both storms and specifically to the pandemic has been led across the industry through the Electricity Subsector Coordinating Council which is a group of CEOs who are tasked with being the interface between our industry and the federal government for emergency response. Since the pandemic, they've been meeting regularly and have tasked subject matter experts across the industry to put together what we call a guidance document 
sort of uh, suggestions, protocols, including on mutual assistance, but a range of other ways that companies can build into their own planning considerations, thoughts from across the industry on how to address COVID and the pandemic. And one of the most important things that this process is done and by having a number of standing teams is there's a positive feedback mechanism there. So for instance, after the Easter storms, mutual assistance subject matter experts, including Willie, were able to get on the phone and share findings and put that back into the, the guidance document that is then shared back out across the industry. As of today, we're up to version eight of that. So it's been regularly updated to keep the industry well informed on how to respond to both COVID and then other challenges like hurricanes and storms. Willie, I'll pivot to you. Anything to add from the company perspective on how you're sharing these best practices around? Yeah, just from an energy standpoint, we're engaged at various levels within our chain of command with various personnel to make sure that we we maintain the continuity of engagement and knowledge transfer. Our president and CEO is engaged at his level to make sure that that process is being done. We have a full circle on that as well as our COO is engaged in the process through SEE and other industry partners. And then at my level with my team, we've definitely been engaged with the whole process on dual event and just storm management and mutual assistance in particular. So I think we got multiple channels that we want to make sure that we don't lose any insight to best practices that we can incorporate and share with others. The SEE you reference is the Southeast Electric Exchange. And so it's really good and I think heartening to hear about how folks are plugged in really across the industry and very willing to share. It's one of the very unique things about this industry is that while occasionally we're in competition, we're more often in coordination. So really good to hear the stories about how you're doing that. We hope that you found this to be an informative 15 minutes, and we look forward to bringing you additional expert insights about the intersection of energy policy and COVID-19. To learn more about the electric industry's response to COVID-19, visit www.eei.org. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts by searching for The Current and We Stand for Energy.